Hello, 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 know-it-alls, and welcome back to the Know-It-All podcast. I am your host, Riley Sue, and I am so excited to be joining you for another installment in our pursuit to know a little bit about everything. Last week, we discussed raccoons and possums in the first volume of our Odd Animal series, which was honestly just so cute, and we had the precious factor turned up to 1,000 in here, and I know you all love those little critters too, so it's been fun talking and looking at all the extra content for that episode. Go ahead and make sure you check out Instagram to see not only the images that I posted for that episode, also the images, of course, for this one, but also all of the bonus content I have been gathering from all around the internet to share with y'all. I've got plenty of raccoon and possum memes. Oh, the possum possibilities are high, y'all. They're high. I also realized, though, when I went back to listen to that episode, you know, got to give myself a listen. I ain't no dummy. Uh, But I realized that I misspoke in the top of it, and I called that episode number 16. It was obviously number 17, and this is 18. I most certainly can count, uh, but please forgive me and still listen to these two episodes this week. I was just trying to get that out to y'all as quick as I could. I thank you for your continued understanding. Today, though, we are going to discuss something that is somewhat related to our last episode, but also really isn't. And originally, they weren't this close in the schedule, but but that's just sort of how it worked out in the end. And now we are here to discuss lawns. Yeah, it's fine. Cheer, that's cool. Uh, but of course, though, this will be lawns know-it-all style. No detail will be spared, and I will try my best to make you laugh while we cover what you may feel at this moment is a rather boring and commonplace topic. But, well, baby, just you wait, because here in the next half hour or so, I'm going to not only make you understand the journey in history, which has gotten us to where we are with lawns, but you'll also learn why I feel that lawns and grass may just be the peak scams of suburbia. So let's sit back, let's relax, and let's get into things. So of course, what is a lawn? What the hell am I talking about when I use that term? For us, a lawn is going to be an area of soil-covered land that is planted with grasses or other durable plants that are then maintained at a short height and used for aesthetic and recreation purposes. Typically, lawns are composed of only one grass species, are subject to weed and pest control, and are mowed at regular intervals to keep them a acceptable length. Air quotes around that. Lawns are usually used around homes and other buildings, but also may be used in city parks or in recreational contexts where the surface would be called a field, pitch, turf, or green. Uh, Which I guess is also a good moment to say that lawns are supposed to be green. That's kind of the whole thing. Uh, And they're expected to be a green color that is almost off-putting to the natural human eye. But where does the word lawn come from? How did we start the journey to where we are today? The word lawn is a cognate of the Welsh word lawn, which finds its origins in the common Britonic word landa, and the term originally meant heath, barren land, or a clearing. Pretty easy to see how we got from that to where we consider lawns today. There's also a later term that could have originated our word, with a 1540 example being laund, like L-A-U-N-D-E, that was used in France and meant the same thing as what I said before. So we know how we got here linguistically, but how did we get here in the literal sense? Like, 
Like, truly, how did we arrive at this moment where there are just green squares all over the map and we're praying for a good enough snowpack that we can water our lawns and lubricate our slipping slides? How did we arrive here from seemingly nowhere? And the honest answer is, well, just kind of by the evolution of recreation. You see, back in the early medieval period, a settlement or a family's field would have been distinctly for agricultural pursuits, like sowing and growing crops. Lawns likely came from the existence and maintenance of enclosed grassy spaces that were used for pasturing of livestock. These spaces would have been communal grazing areas where you could pasture your animals to graze right alongside your pals and other people from your village. Like a dog park for cows or sheep. You could come, watch your goats do their thing, and hear the neighborhood scuttlebutt while you're drinking a glass of tea. Lawns really, though, became popular amongst the aristocracy in Northern Europe, and the aristocrats liked them because low-growing grasses allowed the people hanging out inside of the castle to easier see the people who were approaching the castle. Most of these earlier lawns were very similar to those communal pastures, and at this time your lawn wouldn't have been much more than just some grass in front of your house. Nothing really too special, aside from the fact that you had the wealth and space to put an acre between you and the street. The more modern idea of adding paths, lawn ornaments, flowers, or Really, anything that would make you want to spend time on your lawn wasn't around at this time. Lawns were just there. Also, I mean, there were no lawn mowers, which is kind of where this episode idea originated from. Like, did the aristocrats just pay people to take scissors to their lawns for hours each day? Did they keep sheep or other grazing animals on their property and pay someone to clean up after and tend to the flock? And it was kind of through a little bit of both. Some people used grazing animals to maintain lower heights, while others employed real humans to work the grounds and keep the grass low by using scythes or shears. Scythes are those big swinging blade things that the Grim Reaper is usually depicted with, if you can't think of it off the top of your head. No worries, I had to also look that one up, and I am an amateur medievalist. But also the use of animals like rabbits, horses, or sheep would cause the grass to create a sort of mat out of itself, and therefore it would be maintained at an appealing level. Lawn care as a term finds its origins here, but at this time meaning more the maintenance by animals rather than by humans. And there are still a few of these more naturally created lawns within forest areas in England, like that of the new forest, the Balmer Lawn. Of course, check out Instagram for some endearing images of sheep and pasture, at KnowItAllPod. So I'm sure you can guess it's hard to define who was the proper first lawn due to the growing popularity of grass, pun intended. But we're going to say that the first lawn, similar to those that we have today, appeared in the 1700s, mostly throughout England and France, with André Lenotre designing the gardens of the Palace of Versailles and in them including an area of grass that he called the tapis vert, or green carpet. The tapis vert is actually 1,315 feet by 1,100 feet, and it has a very similar vibe to the south lawn of the White House here in the U.S., just a very long expanse that perfectly frames the estate beyond. Very, very pretty stuff. I mean, I mean, so gorgeous that the French decided to behead their aristocrats and make it their own. So it wasn't until the 17th and 18th centuries that gardens and lawns became places with walkways that were used for social areas. And by this time, they were mostly made up of meadow plants, such as chamomile, which was very, very popular. In the early 17th century, the Jacobian epoch of gardening began. And during this period, the closely cut English-style lawn was born. And by the end of this period, the English lawn was a firm symbol of status in the aristocracy and gentry. It showed that the owner could afford to keep land that was not being used for building or for food production. The flex 
in its entirety was, I have this and I'm going to do nothing with it. It's same vibe as like someone sitting on a hoard of wealth, but think of it as a hoard of land and there are people living in the streets. You know what? Actually, that still happens. Just just think of it as people land hoarding. In the early 18th century, though, landscape gardening for the aristocracy entered what could be called a golden age under the direction of William Kent and Lancelot Capability Brown. Together, they refined the English landscape garden style with the design of natural or romantic estate settings for wealthy Englishmen. And Brown, who's remembered as England's greatest gardener, designed more than 170 parks, many of which are still in existence. The more open English style of parklands first spread across Britain and Ireland, and then across Europe. And by this time, the word lawn in England had semantically shifted to describe a piece of garden covered with grass and closely mowed. Wealthy families in America during the late 18th century also began to mimic English landscaping style. Wealthy families in America during the late 18th century also began mimicking English landscaping styles. In 1780, the Quaker community began the first industrial production of high-quality grass seed in North America, and a number of seed companies and nurseries were founded in Philadelphia. The increased availability of these grasses meant they were in plentiful stock for parks and residential areas, not just to feed livestock. Thomas Jefferson actually has been long given credit for being the first person in the U.S. to attempt an English-style lawn at his estate, Monticello, but there were many others who were doing it before he tried. Uh, It's very in the style of TJ, though, to take something old and rebrand it as his new idea, Democratic Republic. Uh, So I can see how people came up with this and then it just took off, Uh, but it's not true. Actually, before this, over time, more and more towns in New England had begun to emphasize grass spaces, laying out plots so that it was prioritized. So like I mentioned, before the mechanical lawnmower, the upkeep of lawns was possible only for the extremely wealthy estates and manor houses of the aristocracy. This all changed, though, with the invention of the lawnmower in 1830 by Edwin Beard Budding. Budding came up with the idea for the lawnmower after seeing a machine in a local cloth mill that used a cutting cylinder mounted on a bench to trim the irregular edge from the surface of woolen cloth and give it a smooth finish. Budding had a revelation and realized that a similar device could be used to cut grass if the mechanism was mounted in a wheeled frame where the blades rotate close to the lawn's surface. He actually planned his mower design as a solution specifically for sports fields or other large areas as a superior alternative to the scythe. But Budding's model had two very crucial drawbacks. It was incredibly heavy because it was made out of cast iron, which made it difficult to maneuver in the garden, and it didn't really cut the grass very well. The blade would often get caught spinning above the grass, and then of course it did nothing. It would take 10 more years for further development and innovation like advancements in motors and the invention of alloy steel for the lawnmower to become a truly practical item. Also at this time, middle-class families across England, in imitation of aristocratic landscape gardens, began to grow finely trimmed lawns in their back gardens, or what we would call backyard. In the 1850s, Thomas Green introduced a revolutionary mower design called the Silence Messer, meaning silent cutter. The machine was much lighter and quieter than the gear-driven machines that had preceded it, and it won first prize at the first lawnmower trial at the London Horticultural Gardens which, as far as I can tell, is like winning grass limpet gold. And so thus began a great expansion in lawnmower production. James Sumner patented the first steam-powered lawnmower in 1893. In 1902, Ransoms produced the first commercially available mower powered by an internal combustion gasoline engine. 
JP Engineering of Leicester, which was founded after World War I, invented the world's first riding mowers. And this all went hand in hand with a booming customer market for lawns from the 1860s and onward. And this was caused in part by the increasing popularity of sports in the mid-Victorian period. The lawnmower was used to create modern-style sporting ovals, playing fields, pitches, and grass courts. And lawns in the U.S. were common from the 1870s onward. As more plants were introduced from Europe, lawns became smaller and they were filled with flower beds, perennials, sculptures, and water features. Eventually, wealthy families began to move away from the cities and into new suburban communities. In 1856, an architectural book was published to accompany the development of the new suburbia, and it explicitly placed importance on the availability of grassy space for children to play on and for use as a space to grow fruits and vegetables. This further tied the lawn with cultural importance. And so starting from here, lawns began making more and more appearances in development plans, magazine articles, and catalogs. The lawn became less associated with being a status symbol and instead gave way to a landscape aesthetic. Improvements in the lawnmower and water supply enabled the spread of lawn culture from the northeast to the south, where the grass grew more poorly. This in combination with setback rules that required all homes to have a 30-foot span between the structure and the sidewalk meant that the lawn had found its perfect place in suburbia. After World War II, a surplus of synthetic nitrogen in the United States led to chemical firms such as DuPont seeking to expand the market for fertilizers. And where do you think they looked besides the average consumer? And what does the average consumer have? A lawn. So the suburban lawn offered an opportunity to market fertilizers, previously ones that had only been used by farmers. And so in 1955, DuPont released Uramite, a slow-release nitrogen fertilizer that was specifically marketed towards lawns. And this trend continued through the 1960s, with chemical firms like DuPont and Monsanto utilizing television advertising and other forms of advertisement to market pesticides, fertilizers, and herbicides. The environmental impacts of these widespread chemicals were noticed as early as the 1960s, but pointing to suburban lawns as a source of pollution was not done. You wouldn't want to eliminate that market that you just created for yourself, would you, DuPont? Prior to European colonization, the grasses on the east coast of North America were mostly broom straw, wild rye, and marsh grass. But as Europeans moved into the region, it was noted by colonists in New England, more than others, that the grasses of the New World were inferior to those of England, and that their livestock seemed to be receiving less nutrition from it. And once livestock brought from overseas in Europe spread throughout the colonies, many of the grasses that were native to New England died out. An inventory list from the 17th century of items headed for the New World noted supplies of clover and grass seed headed from England. New colonists were even urged by their country in sponsoring travel companies to bring grass seed with them to North America. By the late 17th century, a new and flourishing market for imported grass seed had begun in New England. So I just want to make one thing clear very quickly. Um, aside from the grasses of the plains, most native grasses in North America are not capable of taking repeated abuse due to traffic from grazing animals. So whether those are cows, horses, sheep, goats, pigs, or other non-native hooved animals, the grasses here, and particularly those on the East Coast, were not made to withstand the movement and eating habits of those creatures. 
But of course, the colonists didn't realize this at the time. So farmers at first continued to put animals to pasture in meadows and marshes composed of indigenous grasses until they became overgrazed. These areas then quickly fell to erosion and were overrun with less favorable plant life. The farmer's response to this was to begin purposefully planting new species of grass in these areas, hoping to improve the quality and quantity of hay that they had to provide for their livestock, which they had to do because the native grass species had a lower nutritional value for their animals. But as cultivated grasses became valued for their nutritional benefits to livestock, farmers relied less and less on natural meadows and more on these curated spaces. Eventually, even those native grasses of the Great Plains were overrun with European species that were more durable to the grazing patterns of imported livestock. One of the most pivotal factors in the spread of the lawn across the United States was the passage of legislation in 1938 that created the 40-hour workweek. You see, before then, Americans had typically worked half days on Saturdays, which left them little time to focus on maintenance of their lawns. This legislation and the housing boom that followed World War II caused managed grass spaces to become more and more commonplace. The early 20th century creation of country clubs and golf courses completed the rise of lawn culture. They were now firmly a part of the expectations for a well-maintained and cared-for home within the United States. And I want to really try to drive home this point. The monoculture of lawns was not a reflex to prevent home depreciation. It instead, in my opinion, was the catalyst of the cookie cutter, copy paste, that homogenous, everyone has a tied sweater around their shoulders and a golden retriever, utopian, idyllic suburb. Money and ideas flowed back from Europe after the US entered World War I entirely changing the way that Americans interacted with both themselves and nature. And the industrialization of water hastened the industrialization of pest control. Intensive suburbanization both concentrated and expanded the spread of lawn maintenance, which meant increased inputs of not only petrochemicals, fertilizers, and pesticides, but also water. Lawns therefore became a means of performing class values for urban middle class in which the condition of the lawn becomes representative of moral character and social reliability. These social values that are associated with your lawn are promoted and upheld by social pressures, lawns, and chemical companies. The social pressures come from your neighbors or even homeowner associations who think that unkempt lawns of neighbors may affect their own property values or create eyesores. Pressures to maintain a lawn are also legal. There are often local or state laws against letting weeds get too tall or letting a lawn space be especially unkempt, punishable by fees or litigation. And those chemical companies want to continue to convince us that the only way to have a perfect yard and therefore a perfect societal grade card is to use miracle Grow. I literally saw a woman using it on my way home earlier. Front lawns became truly standardized, though, in the 1930s, when, over time, specific aspects like grass type and maintenance methods became popular. The lawn care industry was booming, but the Great Depression and the period prior to World War II made it difficult to maintain the cultural standards that had become heavily associated with the lawn due to seed shortages in Europe, which was America's main supplier. Still, seed distributors such as Scott's miracle Grow Company in the United States, there they are, Scott's miracle Grow encouraged families to continue to maintain their lawns, promoting it as a stress-relieving hobby. 
I personally am allergic to grass, so I have never even cut a lawn in my entire life. This is one of those topics that I'm fascinated by because I genuinely don't understand it. Um, but it doesn't seem like fun and a stress relieving hobby, particularly one for the Great Depression and World War II. Like, I don't think I don't think my lawn is going to help me manage the stress that is associated with those two issues. That's why speed was popular in the 1950s, okay? Let's like let's just call a spade a spade, or I guess a speed a speed. During the war itself, though, homeowners were asked to maintain the appearance of the home front, likely as a show of strength, morale, and solidarity, and that included their lawns. After World War II, the lawn aesthetic once again became a standard feature of North America, bouncing back from its minor decline in the decades before with a true vengeance particularly as a result of the housing and population boom that took place post-war. Levittown, New York, was the beginning of the industrial suburb in the 20th century, and by proxy, the industrial lawn. Between 1947 and 1951, Abraham Levitt and his sons built more than 17,000 homes, each with its own lawn. Think about that. 17,000 homes in four years, each with its own lawn in one area. Abraham Levitt wrote, quote, No single feature of a suburban residential community contributes as much to the charm and beauty of the individual home and the locality as well-kept lawns, end quote. So landscaping was one of the most important factors in Levittown's success, and no feature was more prominent there than the lawn. The Levitts truly understood that landscaping could add to the appeal of their developments and claimed that, quote, Increase in values are most often found in neighborhoods where lawns show as green carpets, end quote, and that over the years, quote, lawns, trees, and shrubs become more valuable both aesthetically and monetarily, end quote. During 1948, which was the first spring that Levittown enjoyed, Levitt and his sons fertilized and reseeded all of the lawns free of charge. I mean, A, talk about customer service. B, talk about making everything cohesive. And C, we already heard about the green carpet. That's not a new idea to us. You're not about to pull the tapas vert over my eyes. Okay, Abraham Levitt? Okay. According to a 2003 study based on satellite observations by Christina Malzi of NASA Earth System Science, it was estimated that, quote, more surface area in the United States is devoted to lawns than to individual irrigated crops such as corn, or wheat, an area covering about 128,000 square kilometers in all, end quote. So again, that is more surface area of the United States that is devoted to lawns rather than individual irrigated crops, such as corn or wheat. I want you to keep that in mind as we go through this next little section, which is going to be less about the history of the lawn and kind of the issues of the lawn. We're getting into that scam side of things. This is the scam of suburbia, y'all, and I'm about to tell you why. So on average, greater amounts of chemical fertilizer, herbicide, and pesticide are used to maintain a given area of lawn than on an equivalent area of cultivated farmland. So if you have an acre lawn, you are likely using a greater amount of chemical fertilizer, herbicide, and pesticide than an acre of farmland. And the use of these products can cause environmental pollution, disturbance of your lawn's ecosystem, and cause health risks to not only wildlife, but also humans. 
Another issue with lawns is that they just generally decrease biodiversity, especially when the lawn covers a large area. Traditional lawns replace plant species that feed pollinators, then requiring bees and butterflies to cross food wastelands in order to reach host plants and other locations where they can feed. Lawns promote general cohesiveness and are normally cleared of unwanted plant and animal species, typically by use of synthetic pesticides. Lawns may be composed of introduced species rather than those that are native to the area, and this is a particular issue in the United States. We have so much wasted space that is completely unusable for the animals and the creatures that live around us. This will produce a habitat that supports a reduced number of wildlife species if it's even capable of supporting any at all. Heading back to those pesticides, they are <laughs> pesticides and they can cause great harm. They're, they're carcinogenic and they may permanently linger in the environment and negatively affect the health of potentially all nearby organisms for not only a short period of time, but an extended one. The Environmental Protection Agency here in the United States actually estimated in 2012 that nearly 71 million pounds, 71 million pounds of active pesticide ingredients are used on suburban lawns each year in the U.S. On top of the 71 million pounds of pesticide, it's been estimated that nearly 17,000 gallons of gasoline are spilled each summer while refueling garden and lawn care equipment in the United States. Everything has an impact, and our lawns seem to have a fucking substantial one. The use of these pesticides and fertilizers, as well as requiring fossil fuels for manufacturing, distributing, and applying these items has been shown to contribute to climate change. Of course, most everything does. A two and a half acre lawn in Nashville, Tennessee can produce greenhouse gases equivalent to 697 to 2,443 kilograms of carbon dioxide a year. The higher figure is equivalent to a flight more than halfway around the world. And chemicals aside, maintaining a green lawn sometimes requires insane amounts of water. And while natural rainfall is usually sufficient to maintain the lawn health in the temperate British Isles, the birthplace of our concept of the lawn, the exportation of the lawn to places like the United States, particularly the Southwest and the West, strains water supply systems when water supplies are already scarce. This necessitates upgrades to larger, more environmentally invasive equipment to deal with an increased demand for lawn watering. And the thing is, guys, is that all of these plant species, all of these grass species that I'm talking about, whether they're imported or they're native, they existed before us. They were out here doing the damn thing, making their way through evolution, finding out how to survive, long before we decided that they had to be bright green in order to make us feel like we are morally superior to our neighbor. Um, grass will go dormant during periods of cold or heat outside of its preferred temperature range, and this dormancy reduces the grass's water demand, and most grasses will typically recover very well from a drought. However, property owners become concerned about the brown appearance and will increase watering during summer months. There's actually a data set that comes from 1995 in Australia that showed that up to 90% of the water that was used in Canberra during the summer drought period 
was used for watering lawns. It's entirely stupid to use 90% of your available water in the middle of a drought to water your lawn. It, 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 it reminds me of the opening scene of a Cinderella story where Hillary Duff is, you know, like getting ready and she gets told to turn the water sprinklers on. Jennifer Coolidge is laying in her tanning bed asking for her like fresh cut salmon or whatever. And they just zoom out. And from this unnaturally green lawn, you just suddenly realize that they're in California and they're the only green lawn for miles. Everyone's lawns are brown. It's it's selfish and it's dumb and it just doesn't actually matter. I mean, the color of your grass has nothing to do with the effectiveness of your person. I'm sorry. No, I'm not. I'm not sorry. Earlier, I mentioned that NASA study that estimated that there were 128,000 square kilometers of irrigated lawn in the United States, right? Well, first of all, what I didn't mention was that was a conservative estimation. But from that estimation, we can figure out that that translates to about 200 U.S. gallons of drinking quality fresh water per person per day that is required to keep up with the United States lawn's surface area. So 200 gallons per person per day is used, nay, is wasted to make sure that, again, you can feel morally superior to the person who lives 30 feet away from you. Dumb. You're not going to convince me that's not stupid. Because just in general, these lawns take up space that could be used more productively, like for urban agriculture or home gardening. And this leads us directly into my next section, which I am so excited to cover, and that is alternatives to these stupid fucking green lawns. Of course, one of the easiest solutions to the problem would be the inclusion or addition of native grasses to your lawn. This one, though, is a little hard because depending on your area and your situation, you might have an HOA or a local ordinance that prevents you from having grass over a certain height. Um, But so aside from grasses, you could put things in like fescue or mint or things like creeping thyme. One idea that I particularly love and I know had its own little moment on TikTok there for a while uh, is the use of clover lawns, which are really great because once they reach a certain height, they're not going to grow past that. And they become a very soft, uh, thick kind of mat. You know, they all intertwine together. Also, random aside, I have a very good skill for finding four-leaf clovers. I am at 15 in 2023. Not to flex. Actually, it is a flex. It's purposeful. But you could also throw the baby out with the bathwater and just go for a gravel lawn, a rock lawn, or a turf lawn, which would be incredibly expensive, but, you know, effective nevertheless. My favorite ideas for lawns, though, are those that are mutually beneficial to not only you, but the creatures around you, human and otherwise. So that could be an edible lawn. That could be a native wildflowers lawn. If you're kind of choosy with the plants that you add in or the items that you choose to include, you could easily attract an abundance of wildlife to your home. And I'm not just talking about the critters from last week. I'm also talking about things like hummingbirds 
butterflies, bees, um, rabbits. Rabbits love clover. Oh my God. I, I watched these rabbits eat some clover in my yard the other day and it was just, it, it was incredible. I don't know why you wouldn't want that. I don't, I don't understand why we want to feel so out of touch with the world and so in touch with our, our egos and our desire to just be like everyone else. No, be you. Be yourself. Let your yard be what it is. Let yourself be what you are. Ew, did I just turn this into a metaphor for like self-actualization? Oh my god. <laughs> so I know that I probably sounded a little, um, how do I put it? Aggressive in this episode when it comes to lawns, but they're genuinely purposeless. And I think that that's very upsetting because they could be so purposeful. They could be such an intentional place of not only, you know, personal maintenance and vision, but also communal gathering and communal support. I mean, if I had a edible yard, if I had squash and strawberries and tomato plants and cabbage and marigolds and roses and all kinds of other beautiful, you know, fun, vibrant, edible plant life in my yard, I would just share that with my community. I would share that with the families that walk down my street. I would encourage my neighbors to take from what I've grown for them because while the lawn has existed under this guise of communal comfortability it's all about discomfort in yourself and a constant inability to reach that perfect level I mean there are other things that you can do with your time there are other there are other actions and behaviors that can fulfill you in your time while also fulfilling others and not actively taking 200 gallons of water away from the world every day. Um, That's just like, that's just insane. And I understand, I totally get like your mindset or your thought process of, I don't use, I don't even water my lawn. Like I don't water my lawn. Um, But you cut your lawn and your lawn has to be seeded. And the bags that your lawn seed comes in the box that your lawnmower came in, everything has an origin, all of it. And it all has a carbon footprint. And it all has a certain amount of water tied to it that had to be used in order for it to get to you. And that's where this all really adds up. And that's what you have to think about whenever you think about this lawn industrial complex and what it's really trying to do. And that's just get you to spend your money as well as get you to spend your time on something that is unattainable and doesn't matter. I feel like a point has been made. Maybe not. Maybe I've just been talking in circles um, because again, I, I don't do lawns. I don't, I don't get it. I don't cut it. I don't, I don't understand. So I, I don't see their value. I grew up poor my parents grew up poor. We were not lawn folk. I will never be a lawn folk. I am, as soon as I have the ability, I am ripping out all of the grass in my yard and I am planting 
a edible or wildflower yard. Probably both. Because I deserve it, and I can, and the rabbits and birds and bugs deserve it. Even the ones that aren't butterflies or hummingbirds. The robins, the crows, the starlings, the ants, the spiders, all of them. They all deserve it. We deserve it. We deserve a space that is truly representative of our experience as humans. And that's not cookie cutter, and it never will be. I think that that is going to have to be where I cut it off, guys. I could sit here and just cite grievance after grievance after grievance with stupid shit that we waste our time and lives and money on just so that we can stay poor and stay stuck in these boxes that the world want to put wants to put us in. But that's not what this episode about, was about. This episode was about lawns, and I think I have sufficiently covered that topic. If you missed it somehow, and this is the most recent new episode that you've seen, we had an episode earlier this week, just on Wednesday, a couple days ago. So make sure you head back and check that guy out. Also, do not forget that in two weeks from now, I will be taking our summer break so that I can go work at the camp that I work for. Um, I will be back, though, on July 19th to return with season two of Know It All. And y'all, I got some things brewing. That's all I'm going to say. That's all I have to say is I got some things brewing. You're just going to have to stick around and find out what that is whenever I reveal it to you. Um, In the meantime, check out the Instagram post for some grass content. (laughs) Um as well as just some, like I said, pictures of cute sheep and other grazing animals. Uh, I will still be posting content for odd animals and this lawn episode simultaneously until next Wednesday. So if you're looking for critters and you're seeing lawn or you're looking for lawn and you're seeing critters, they are both happening right now. Um, just bear with us. You know, I'm a, I'm a human with a life and a spicy, spicy brain. So we deal with things as they come. Goodbye, though. I hope you will join me next week in the pursuit to know a little bit about everything. In the meantime, please like the Instagram post, share the pod with a friend. That is truly the way that we best organically grow as a community. You know, whenever y'all just reach out to a friend or a loved one and you're like, hey, I like this. I think you'll like this. Um, let's continue to make a know-it-all army. I still have the voice message box turned on for our episodes. It's in the episode description, as well as listener support. Um, If you want to buy me a cup of coffee, you want to help me pay for some of the books that I have to get all the time, or you just want to, you know, show your appreciation for uh, the free content that I have helped provide you the last few months, um, that would be deeply and eternally appreciated. Mostly though, guys, of course, as always, stay safe out there. I love you, love you, love you. Until next time. Thanks.